I think the biggest breakthrough is you, you got to put skin in the game, you know, example leadership, servant leadership type thing. I mean, no, those are buzzwords, but, but, but really getting into showing what you're about. Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey. And you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Christopher Udall, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast, my friend. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. It is greater to have you, and I'll tell you why. Um, You are one of those people that I talk to that makes me feel like I should be doing more. And and people, as we get into your story here, people realize why uh, you are both, uh, you're inspiring in what you've done fearless really in, in many ways. And yeah, so that's, I mean, enough of me talking, man. Now you're doing some, a bunch of consulting work and you've done so much humanitarian work, but let's, I, I'm going to let you tell your own story. Give me some background. Like where, where did you get started and, and walk us down some of the more amazing things that you've done in, in recent years? Yeah, I think for me, it all started pretty, pretty much in my youth. You know, I had a, a great uh, upbringing parents who would give me tools for Christmas, a grandma that uh, kept me occupied hammering nails into a board, right, when I was an annoying kid. And, you know, I loved that stuff. So I started, you know, pursuing a career path down the construction route and realized, you know, my back might not be built for that. So went to school and got a, I'd probably say one of the more useless degrees you can get out there uh, in intercultural peace building. Intercultural peace building. Yeah, it's kind of a mix between anthropology and and conflict resolution and and, uh, international relations. And, you know... Where did you go to school, Christopher? uh, BYU, Hawaii. So, real rough life, you know, North Shore, (laughs) one of the beach. Good for you. Well, well played. Yeah, Yeah, one of the smarter things I've done. But yeah, I realized... uh, that I, I just loved studying this, this aspect of conflict resolution and, and had a job teaching carpentry in the community to some of the youth and realized, you know, a lot of good can happen when you're mixing these kind of conflict resolution principles with actual physical trades. And I figured, hey, it's, it's working here. It might work in the Middle East. So I uh, jumped on a flight and moved to the Kingdom of Jordan. I knew one person on Facebook who was a friend of a friend. I was recommended to be his friend. And I said, great, that's a start. And, you know, things kind of just rolled faster than I had planned. Uh, We uh, got favor with Jordanian parliament real quick and got funding through the 
Jordanian government to start our first vocational school where we were working with refugees, teaching them uh, vocational skills, peace building, entrepreneurship, uh, in an effort to mitigate youth joining extremist causes. And mm. uh, it just took off. We started with three schools, it expanded to seven and then 15 and, you know, still working. They, the need is so great you know, to work with youth and, and really build economies that are youth-centric economies to help develop them out of these more illicit trades that uh, so many tend to gravitate towards. And that's in, in, in every part of the world. You, know, you see that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is this just in Jordan or are you guys expanding oh, I, into other countries? No, uh, someone told me that Jordan was the hardest place to start a nonprofit. And I said, mm. watch me kind yeah. of a thing, <laughs> you know. That's always kind of been my attitude is tell me no. And that's the greatest motivation you can give me to, to get things done. Well, yeah. And there, there's a lot more to it too, man. I mean, you've, you've been, you've done philanthropic work down in Mexico. You've, I mean, you've, you've done some pretty hardcore stuff too, man. Expand on some, some more of the things that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot of community development work in Southern Mexico. I lived there for two years uh, as a missionary and uh, absolutely love my time there. Learned Spanish and, and met some amazing people. Uh, I've also done some work in uh, Romania, countering uh, child sex and organ trafficking, doing an infiltrative financial investigation into the supply chain of actually what makes that business profitable and function so we could figure the weak link and, and mm. build an initiative around it to to make the industry less profitable. You know, find the pain points and work backwards from there to counteract that industry. So, yeah, that's that's no joke, man. I mean, I'm, I'm super curious about all three of these kind of phases. You got Jordan, Mexico, Romania. When you went to Romania, why, why did people tell you it was gonna be so difficult to start a nonprofit? What was the reason? In uh, Jordan? Jordan, sorry. A lot of it just comes down to, I mean, starting a nonprofit anywhere is, is very difficult. You basically need to become a professional beggar. And in a culture where donations and service are viewed differently or given differently, it's, it's a big learning curve. So that was one of the, the reasons that that played into it. And Jordanians are some of the most friendly and hospitable people I've ever met, but when they work, they expect to be compensated for their labor. And, uh, and so as a nonprofit, you often rely on volunteers and different things. And, and that can be difficult if there's not a culture of, of volunteerism, but they do have a rising uh, culture of volunteerism in the younger generation. Do you think volunteerism is a sign of maybe a more developed economy? And I, I'm, I'm making total blind assumptions that Jordan doesn't have a very developed economy. I could be way off. Um, it could be a wealthy nation. I don't know. But do you see a correlation there out of curiosity? I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's more of an economic development question or a uh, cultural practice. I know the uh, uh, European nations, well, depending, have uh, more volunteerism in the culture. But, but that's a good question. I, I don't have an answer for that. So in Jordan... How did you overcome that? How did you overcome that challenge of getting people to be more willing to give up their time in order to help with a bigger cause? What was, what was your, did you have any breakthroughs or aha moments in that journey? 
I think the biggest breakthrough is you, you got to put skin in the game, you know, example leadership, servant leadership type thing. I mean, no, those are buzzwords, but, but, but really getting into showing what you're about and putting myself in situations that are uncomfortable to show that, you know, this is what I think volunteerism looks like. And if you'd like to follow me, it's, it's going to have benefits, right? It might not be the benefits financially, but it will have benefits. And, and one of those was um, an attack that uh, happened in, in the village of Al-Karak in 2016. That was uh, claimed by ISIS. They attacked the Al-Karak Crusader Castle, which is a 13th century French Crusader castle. And, uh, you know, they came in, they, they uh, killed too many tourists and a lot of, it was, it was a big, it was a dark day in the history of Jordan. Um, our nonprofit got together and we were teaching some youth in that village. And we said, Hey, you know, they, they approached me and said, we would like to, to rebuild uh, this castle. And we uh, called the department of antiquities. And that's where my useless degree became a little bit more useful as I, I did get certified in cultural anthropology and uh, they said, well, are you an anthropologist? And I said, well, yes, I am. And uh, we got <laughs> approval uh, to go in and rebuild this, this castle, you know, fix the bullet holes, get a new paint job, that kind of thing, uh, fix some of the stone. So we trained up the youth and they did that. They hung a banner uh, from the castle that said, in the wake of violent conflict, we will rebuild for peace, which became the name of our organization. And it was this statement that, you know, you have this youth-run initiative, youth telling other youth, like, there is a different way, you know. You have two sides of the extreme. Both, both groups came from the same village. The folks that shot up the castle came from the same village as the folks that repaired the castle, same age demographic. But very, very different outcomes. And uh, I think the core uh, change in there was, was that economic piece, finding a different economic structure to fund uh, a youth development and lifestyle uh, than, you know, these more extremist causes that are often too profitable. So I guess the question I have with that, with more in depth into Jordan is, you know, with, with the youth, I guess, if you're going to give like a typical journey, right? What, what, what would that path look like before you guys came in and started doing the work that you're doing? You know, it's, it's all different paths. A, a lot of the folks that we, well, I shouldn't say folks, a lot of the youth that we work with are, are refugees. You know, they're coming okay. from Syria, they're coming from Palestine, they're coming from uh, Afghanistan and some of these other countries. And they're, they've come to Jordan to make a better life or to find some sort of uh, economic relief or relief from conflict. And uh, what happens is they'll often be sitting on their hands. It's hard to work uh, on refugee status. And so they'll, they'll start getting frustrated. And once you start getting frustrated and you're an able body, uh, male or female, it's, it's easy to get recruited by some of these organizations. But, you know, they'll give you a job and they'll pay you well and they'll give you a purpose. Hmm. Um, and it might not be the most constructive job for the community. So coming in and, and finding ways to innovate in that space where you can develop an economy for a group of youth, you know, you, you help them build a business, you find a, a gap, a, either a skill gap or a, a market gap, and you innovate around 
making sure they're getting money in their pockets and it's something that they've built that they can be proud of that, that brings honor to them and brings honor to their family is is essential and building in those those aspects of leadership training and entrepreneurship training and and you know that conflict resolution just kind of rounds out the holistic training of you know one i my whole concept around vocational education is uh not that it's something that you learn or it's it's a skill but i think vocational education is absolutely a mindset fundamentally and i believe that vocational ed is the mindset of challenging your identity uh because you can take something that's broken something that's unused and you can or a raw material you can recycle it repurpose it and create something both functional and beautiful with that in any given skill and you can apply that to your own person you know there's infinite possibilities one day i can decide i'm going to be a carpenter and i will learn carpentry once you've learned carpentry the next day you can say well if i've learned carpentry then i can also learn you know sewing or mathematics or quantitative something or another or physics i mean it's it's endless once you start that path of challenging your identity and and realizing you can do more and be more and become more uh with the tangible result from your past um i can't help but think that that just sounds like a better model of education for the western world too <laughs> i uh I'm very grateful for my education. I got a great one, but now, you know, today's recording me in the 15th of September in 2020. It's like, we're seeing definitely, you know, a very ripe for disruption university model, um, teetering right on, on the balance. And, uh, I think one of the things that may come out of it is, you know, something where, I, I mean, I look back at, you know, I have a very traditional education and most of my education was just built upon, you know, hey, you have to learn algebra or you have to learn French. So go memorize it, pass the test. And that was it. That's kind of what, what we had. I mean, there's very few institutions that teach you the process of learning, right? And recreating yourself, which nowadays, I mean, you look at, I don't know how old you are. I think you're definitely younger than me, Christopher, but like, you know, the millennial generation is there. They, they go out, you know, I was talking to a friend who's a firefighter He's been in the fire department for 21 years and he's like, you know, younger people come in, they're like five, six years in, they're still 14 years out from, you know, any kind of pension. They're like, yep, I'm good. I'm going to go try something else now. So we're starting to see, you know, more mobility amongst, you know, uh, the younger generations. And I'm wondering if that's a tool that you think would be applicable here, you know, in Western education too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the end goal. My, my mentality is, is if it works in Jordan and if it works with youth, uh, you know, in these other countries, Mexico, Romania, then it's going to work in Southside Chicago or Phoenix or, or any big city where you have youth that are joining with any number of illicit causes to make money, to have purpose, to be a part of a group, but really, you know, innovating in, in that, that, uh, arena of why, why are youth joining these groups? Because there is a financial aspect. There's an emotional aspect. They're, they're practical conscious decisions. I mean, nobody wakes up and says, well, you know, today I want to become a, uh, uh, a user of violence to make money, you know? Right, right. And, and, and there's probably a small percentage of people in the world that might have that. You know, I'll, 
I'll admit that. But uh, but for the most part, uh, it's it's a process that has trade offs. You know, it's it's a lack of opportunity or a lack of seeing opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like you're helping them create their own opportunity or just seeing where it is, right? It could be anywhere. Like I love the example you said of finding, you know, something that is a remnant, you know, a piece of sh- shrapnel, I don't know, right? And taking it and repurposing it and making it into something useful. That's, that takes a, a retrained eye, really, right? A whole perception yeah. thing. So I'm curious now, I mean, the Jordan thing, I'm, I could ask you questions for, for days, but this what you did in Romania, how, how did you start this? Like, did someone approach you be, Hey, Christopher, this is a huge problem. We want you to tackle. Was it something that came across your, you know, your, your plate by happenstance or was it something you intentionally sought out to solve this, you know, help you a solution for this? Where, where did that come from? So it was the main reason I chose to get an MBA and uh, it actually came through the university of Notre Dame. Uh, they have a program called Business on the Front Lines. And this was the the program I applied for and the client that we were serving uh, just so happened to want to tackle uh, this issue. Um, so building on what I had learned in working with, you know, recruiters from extremism in the Middle East, uh, it was, you know, more or less my assignment to get into the more nitty gritty of the, the uh, first hand research with, with pimps and traffickers. <laughs> but, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, keep going, man. I mean, I'll, I'll see my questions. I got a million of them. Yeah, so my uh, core purpose for, for going to grad school, I mean, entrepreneurship, you definitely don't need to go to grad school. That's not a, a real thing that you do. Uh, but I have a really, fundamentally deep question that I'm trying to answer during my time uh, and kind of my life question. That's how do you make peace profitable? Uh, And it was what I gave a Ted talk on uh, last year was the profitability of peace and, and really what does it take? You know, you, you see a lot of uh, things on the news and in the media, uh, especially now about, you know, child, trafficking and and organ trafficking and some of this other stuff at least it pops up on my newsfeed quite often mm. uh, but as as much as it's amazing to to see folks that are going in and rescuing people you know to use an analogy there's 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 babies in the river that are floating and they're drowning and and someone sees that and jumps in and grabs a baby pulls it out and then the next baby comes along and someone sees it and grabs it and pulls it out. But there's someone throwing babies in the river and uh, why, and how do you stop them, you know, kind of stopping the problem that is caused. And, and um, that's what I've found uh, in my study of this and my research into my field work is everyone's concerned about helping the victim of sex trafficking. And rightly so it's, it's horrible. I mean, it's one of the most, awful things uh, out there, I think, is organ and and child trafficking. But we often don't think about the traffickers and the pimps, unless we're thinking about how we can hurt them and harm their family and whatever else, uh, or blow up their village. But, you know, getting to that point where you can look at it and say, well, 
he didn't wake up one morning and say, well, I'm going to be a pimp and I'm going to go find this girl and I'm going to take her and sell her organs and then traffic her into Italy. But there was a process. There was a reason he made certain trade-offs in life to where he got to the position he is. And it's often in the same vein of this, this lack of economic opportunity amongst youth. You know, they're, they're grasping at straws in some ruler areas and someone comes along and says, I'll give you a job. If you drive this truck, you start driving the truck and then you realize there's people in the back and you, it's kind of a slow progression of, uh, of getting into the industry. So then that's a really hard, very hard question to emotionally get past. How do I serve the pimp? Mm -hmm. uh, how do I make the pimp's life better? How do I get him into a career that is both profitable enough to suit his needs, but also gives him more uh, purpose and satisfaction in life? Um, you know, and the, you, you help a pimp out of pimping and you, you're stopping it at its source is, is the way I have found it to be. And, and uh, it, you'll be hard pressed to find a nonprofit that, that is in that space. I, I, don't, I certainly don't know of any. Um, I'm, certainly, I'm certain it's a very difficult fundraising pitch to the donors. Hey, yeah, give right. me money. I'm going to go help, uh, help these pimps and organ traffickers. Right. I don't know what their financial model would look like, but I do feel like that is, that is what uh, it's going to take, you know, and that requires a lot of humility to actually get to that level of compassion and empathy for another human being when you know what they're doing is, is evil. Well, it's, it's uh, that your way of thinking about this problem is so, once again, it's so valuable. And so I mean, the first thing I think of is the George Floyd incident, right? Um, in the, the police officer, I don't know his name. I think everyone saw that video and they said, that man is terrible, right? He is evil, like he's wrong, he needs to go to jail or worse. My first thought was, what made him into the person he is now that would sit on someone's neck for eight minutes and 47 seconds, right? Like, what were the events? I'm sure he didn't get into the, you know, there's a really good chance he didn't get into the police force to get to that point, right? Where, hey, you know, this is what I want to do with my life. Doubt that happened. So what were, this, what were these series of events and relationships and things that, that formed who that person was that we saw in that video and the context around it? But no one wants to, no one wants to do that. No one wants to have potential compassion for that police officer, right? They just want to go straight for vilifying that person. I'm not saying he's a good or bad person. I don't know, but I would want to seek to understand what it is that made him that way. I mean, it, it just seems like a great approach um, practically to life, but in people there are so many emotional triggers that people have to work through to get there, right? What's the age old uh, question of balancing justice and mercy and and uh, that is uh, the topic for our time, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just an interesting time. And I think a lot, you know, these problems that you're seeing in, in Jordan and in Romania and, and uh, you know, I don't think it's rooted around social media, but here in, in this country, um, United States, man, 
social media seems to be a root of a lot of, a lot of problems. You know, it's just processed spoon fed information the way that people want to deliver it to you and you're not really getting the whole picture and it's, it's, yeah, it's wild. I don't want to get started on that one. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's just a crazy time to be, to be living here. Um, so you, you've been doing this massive amount of, of philanthropic and humanitarian work and thank you for doing all of it. Where, where is it leading to now? Like what, what is, what is Christopher doing now? September 15th, what's your current ventures? I'm the co-founder of a growth strategy firm called Clarity Road uh, that for me fits right in with, with everything else I'm doing. It's, it's a continuation of, of my effort to solve that question of building an economic uh, structure to make peace profitable. Uh, it's getting companies and, and executive teams to a point where they can think thoughtfully better about how they're doing business, how they can see their employees and their customers uh, for who they are and uh, deliver what the customer actually wants and not necessarily what the company wants from the customer. So it's a, it's a little bit of a mindset shift there. Yeah. Ooh, that's a big challenge. So the profitability of peace. I love that. I think that's going to be the name of this episode. Give me some examples, man. How, how can peace be profitable to corporations or individuals? How, how do you make that shift? Give me, give me maybe an, an anecdotal story. An anecdotal story. You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> or just an I'd example. Rather, rather than an Some, anecdotal Something I can, story, I can wrap my simple monkey brain around. You know, you, you, you go into a company that's in conflict, that uh, has a very competitive culture ingrained, that's, you know, very performance-based. You're going to see uh, people backstabbing each other for promotions. You're going to see all sorts of shady stuff going on with client interface and trying to get ahead and take credit for other people's work. All of those actions, uh, seen or unseen, have a cost to the company, a quantifiable cost. Peace, and not peace in the sense of, you know, everyone singing kumbaya. I, I love Gandhi's quote on peace, that peace is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to cope with it. So when I talk about peace and the profitability of peace, it's, it's how we deal with conflict. And it's, you know, dealing with conflict within a corporate structure, within a corporate culture. Uh, and changing or allowing change in that culture to be more collaborative and, uh, you know, see your employees instead of thinking, how am I going to get a promotion over you thinking, well, how am I going to help you achieve your best goals and dreams and work and, uh, and hope that you will do the same for me. And, and that's a really hard thing for business folks to wrap their mind around. No one wants to hope that that, that will happen in return. But the, the data is out there. You know, you have uh, uh, books written just on this subject uh, about the profitability of, of focusing on helping everyone around you succeed and how your success tends to be, to be higher. Give and Take is the book I was thinking about that uh, discusses this issue. But I the other aspect is you know, how much money does it cost your company in customer service relations? Hmm. Uh, you know, how much money are you losing if you have a bad reputation with your customer? Uh, all of these things fit in this conflict management section. You know, how, how do you make peace profitable? Why is peace profitable? Um, 
when people feel comfortable doing business with you, you're going to be profitable. When people have brand loyalty, you're going to be profitable. And those things really come around to uh, this aspect of, of uh, being thoughtfully better in how you, you work with, with one another. So what, uh, what type of, what's like an ideal client for you guys, Clarity Road? Uh, you know, we go for mid-level, mid-sized companies, you know, between 10 and 100 million a year. But we love working with uh, companies that are a little rebellious, that uh, want to challenge the traditional way of doing business and, and uh, that also are wanting to get things done for themselves. You know, we're not the, the traditional consulting company that just says, or that, you know, that our main uh, goal is to pitch you for our next problem that we're going to solve for you, but to actually sit down with you, go through a workshop. And at the end of the workshop, your team will be able to solve its problems in this new way of thinking for the foreseeable future. And if you need us, we're here to help. We're here to, bend over backwards for you. But our goal is that you don't need us again. And it's a terrible business model for profitability. But, uh, you know, it's not all about money for us. It's, it's a lot about getting to the core of, of helping people think better together. Well, I love that approach. And I remember, you know, back in the day when uh, I hired my first remote fitness coach. His name is James Fitzgerald. Very big deal in the CrossFit world. And the first thing you say is like, Hey, you know, my goal is that you, you won't need me in two years. You know, be totally self-sufficient. You'll have great habits. You'll know how to train. You'll be able to program for yourself. And I was like, I remember thinking, I'm like, that is a shitty business model, man. But I appreciate it. I respect it. And I signed up and I, you know, gave him two years, three years of my life. Right. Um, and it turns out I don't need him anymore but I can pass the value on. It's not like he's now elevated to higher levels with, you know, coaching, coaching other coaches and, and being an educator. And, um, it works out when you're authentic and you're honest and you know, you tell people like, Hey, it's cause let's be honest. Like when it comes to consulting or coaching or anything like that, uh, it's not forever. No one sticks with the same consultant or coach or mentor forever. Uh, you eventually, grow and you have different needs and the people and the tools that got you to where you are now aren't the same ones that are going to, it's going to take to get you to where you want to go after that. So it's, it makes a lot of sense. And I think people, I would imagine people probably resonate with that quite, quite strongly. Yeah. Well, and, and you're talking about them. I mean, there's, there's value in that. It's not always about the bottom line of the P and L statement, but it's about your value as, as a brand, as a whole word of mouth uh, and, and the impact you make. Yeah. Yeah. I think the best type of business to build is a referral based business. Right. Um, but nobody wants to hear that because <laughs> <laughs> that takes time, right? Yeah. It takes great relationships. It takes a lot of things. And, um, but once you build it, it's a lot, it's a lot more fun. Um, you don't have to be on the, you know, digital marketing bandwagon forever because you actually have a good service and that's, that's critical too. Um, you know, so now is you're, Kind of in that, I guess you've always been an entrepreneur, right? I mean, even you just, it wasn't the typical route. You did more of the humanitarian work, but you were always there solving problems. With all of these huge challenges and meaningful challenges that you've taken on, what do you think has been one of the more 
the bigger personal challenges that you face along the road, not just business or application of what you're doing, but you know, you, Christopher, as a person, what, what's been one of the bigger challenges you faced? That's a great question. I'm a very open person. Um, but I, I let my health go in exchange for the impact I was trying to create. You know, I, I gained quite a lot of weight and uh, went to the doctor and he was like, you've got a bunch of things wrong and uh, you're obese. I was like, oh, thanks, buddy. But uh, that was the thing. I, I thought that busy meant success. I thought if I was grinding away, if I was pitching donors one more, uh, one more ask, you know, that would be the next breakthrough to get me to a better situation or a better lifestyle. And I, I believed that. You know, I believed that the more busy I am, the more successful I'm going to be. And I... I didn't realize that that was an absolute lie until about a year ago. Um, you know, and it was sitting in that doctor's office and he said, you know, you're obese. You got a bunch of health problems. I remember walking out and I kind of wanted to hold back tears. You know, I reach into my briefcase and I pull out my microwave burrito that I had for my lunch that day. And mm. I threw it away. <laughs> Good for you. And I said, uh, you know, I'm a religious man and I said a quick, a quick prayer that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to take care of my health. That's a promise I'm making. There's going to be trade-offs and I'll probably swear a little more because I'm going to be very hungry. <laughs> and uh, that's what I did. I uh, went home. My, my wife at the time was, was studying at Harvard Medical School's program for refugee trauma recovery and she was in Italy uh, on this program. So I was a bachelor, which is probably a good thing at that time because I threw everything unhealthy away in the house. I started a new diet of, you know, mainly vegetables, whatever the doctor told me, you know, the portion sizes. And I stuck with it. And to date, I've lost 94 pounds. Wow. And uh, I feel amazing. Uh, a lot more energy. You know, I, it just feels great. But what I learned in that was that busy was destroying my life, you know, even busy doing, you know, good things, air quotes, but, uh, it wasn't working. I, you know, I'll, I'll get to the same results, but I'm not happy. It's like, if I was hiking up a mountain, I can get to the same top of the mountain if I'm wearing a backpack filled with rocks and I hate my life, but I'm still at the top, but there's a better way to do things. I can still get to the top of that mountain I have the right equipment, less equipment, definitely not a bag of rocks. Uh, and uh, that's kind of what I took into the, the business world. And, you know, that's kind of what we, we bring Clarity Road through is, is teaching this aspect of companies. You know, you can be thoughtfully better about how you do business. Busy is not the answer. Um, and for me, Rebuild for Peace, the nonprofit, Clarity Road, I've found a lot more time to actually do the things that matter the most. And all the little busy things really don't matter. You know, they, if you, if you don't have work to do on your desk, don't do it. Go, go have fun, go golfing, <laughs> you know, take, take care of yourself. And when there's work to be done, get the work done, but there's no sense in making work for yourself or feeling like you, you have to fill a 40 hour 
work week or a 60 hour work week or, or whatever it is. And, and a lot of that, that was, you know, trying to provide for, for my wife and, and uh, realizing, you know, you can work that old adage, you know, sharpen the ax, cut down more trees, you know, work yep. smarter, not harder. You know, you hear that. And I always heard that growing up, but, but you don't really apply it, at least in my case, until the doctor said, you know, you're, you're not going to live very long if you keep doing what you're doing. And I, I'm 28 years old, so I don't want to hear that yet. Yeah, yeah, right. This is, well, first of all, kudos to your doctor for recommending a nutrition plan versus prescribing pills. Um, that's super refreshing for me to hear. And then also, I'm glad that we're diving into probably one of the most fundamental pieces of what we do to a level five mentor, sound like you do the same thing at Clary Road, is helping people think about the way they think and then adjusting their time. The single hardest thing for most entrepreneurs to do is take a pure off day. What I mean by that is one day a week, do nothing that resembles work or feels like work. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, I can't do that. And yeah, you can do it, try it. And you know, what I found is this actually used to be a problem, but I adjusted it a long time ago is I, I put restraints on my time. And I think that's something that people really need to do is prioritize your leisure and your recovery and your self um, care and put constraints on your time. Like I work seven to two every day, right? Rarely will you find me doing anything after that because I pretend like I have a flight to catch. Like if I'm going to catch a flight at two o'clock every day, I got to do everything. And if it's not that important, it won't fit into the schedule. And if it's super important, then I move something else that's not as important. And by doing that, you also become way more productive, right? And then you're also resting yourself. You're more creative. You're seeing things from a different angle. And I think, you know, when you look at uh, the hustle and grind mentality that's out there now, you know, the Gary V hustle, 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 and um, all kinds of people who, you know, uh, are saying you got to grind it out. You got to work all the time. You know, that's what it takes to be successful. I don't think that's true, man. I really don't. And it sounds like you've kind of, you started to figure that out too. Yeah, it's, uh, it's important. It really changes the game. How do you organize your time now? Do you have a plan for that? Are you intentional with it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have times where I, you know, adding in an hour workout into a day uh, has been a priority and, and really just kind of setting a list of priorities. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, you know, analogy of filling a jar with rocks and, and then pebbles and then sand and then water. Yeah. Yeah. I love that one. And then beer actually. That <laughs> one I saw. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably even better. But, uh, that's kind of how I looked at it. What, what are my A priorities? What are the things that I have to do today so I can be around in 50 years and be happy and healthy? And those take first priority. Um, and everything else, if it happens, great. It's a bonus. If it doesn't, then that's okay. You know, another aspect of, of time priority is, you know, after living in Hawaii for three years, you, you loosen up about actually planning <laughs> things out, but you set core activities and tasks that need to get done and the deliverables that have to get done and you do them and whatever time it takes is the time it takes. And when you're done, you're done. Uh, if it's 15 minutes, if it's two hours, 
uh, just set a goal for what items I need to take care of, get them done and then go play. And, and that's kind of how I've approached it is not necessarily, well, today I'm going to work these four hours and try and get these things done in that time. It's I'm going to do these two or three or four or five things and then I'm going to go have fun. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I love it. Such a great message. I'm glad you're getting it out there. Um, as far as your business, Clarity Road and, and everything that you're doing, what's, what's, what's one of the bigger needs you have right now? Well, you know, we're in the startup phase. So client acquisitions always, you know, one of the number one priorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's the phase we're in with, with Rebuild for Peace. We're working on our, our monthly donor campaign um, for donating an hour of your work's compensation to sponsor a student and help them start a lifelong career. And uh, as well as, you know, in general, my, my dream is to, to become the expert in the field of youth economic development. And I don't know if that field exists yet, but I'm going to build it. And, uh, you know, if I can picture myself 10 years down the road, it's, it's in a village maybe in Turkmenistan uh, consulting a tribal leader or a government official on, on how to build youth centric economies that, that get rid of some of these extremist issues or illicit industries that as communities are facing. And, uh, that's, that's where I'm headed. And, uh, there's not really a charted path. So it's hard for me to say what's my biggest need (laughs) for that. Right. Yeah. There's a bunch of, and that's, that's the fun of, a. a bootstrap startup, right? Is, uh, yep. you know, it's, yep. it's, there's so many things to work on. It's so challenging. Um, it takes so much resilience to, to continue to fail forward. Uh, and then you just keep trying things and then it works. It's just, it's funny if you just focus on something and put your head down and, um, it tends to go, it tends to go. So yeah, just keep talking about it because someone knows someone who knows someone. Yeah, there you go. Get on more <laughs> podcasts. Yeah, the world's not that big. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's awesome, man. Well, where, where can people find you, man? Well, there, there's so many different things you're doing. Where can people get a hold of you, Christopher? You know, I'm, I'm happy to connect on LinkedIn um, under Christopher Udall. Uh, you can reach me on, you know, either of the websites, uh, clarity-road.com and rebuildforpeace.org. Uh, those are the two main places. Awesome. Well, Christopher, we'll, we'll put all that in the notes, of course, in ways for people to get a hold of you. Uh, yeah, man, I just really happy to have you on. Your, your, your background and the work you've done is obviously um, extremely noteworthy. And uh, I'm glad there's people like you out there. It makes me want to do more. And uh, it's great. I'm just I'm happy to have the opportunity to highlight you here. I appreciate you having me on and, and your kind words. You give me a lot to live up to there. <laughs> yeah, you got it, man. Ladies and gentlemen, Christopher Udall, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. 
whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be. I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, Make an introduction, whatever it may be. You can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast and you can expect a lot more from us.